So last week we finished Job chapter 7, which is Eliphaz's accusation of Job and Job's response. And as we go into this, one of the things to keep in mind as you're listening to this is put yourself in the shoes of Job's accusers and understand that these are people that have traveled a fair distance to be with Job. They have sat with him in silence for seven days. So these are not his enemies. These are people who regard themselves as his friends. And imagine yourself in, I'll pick a denomination, Baptist, Evangelical, whatever church, and you go into that church on a Sunday morning and say, I have been righteous this week. What do you expect the reaction would be from your fellow congregants? You understand what I'm saying? You know, I went over the business last week of all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I said that that is in the context of Isaiah talking to an Israel that is about to go into exile and are practicing the forms of religion, but they have descended into wickedness and are about to be exiled. So in that context, the righteousness that they are practicing, which is the temple service, smells to him like dirty diapers. The temple service is something he himself set up. Being in right standing with everything else you're doing, doing that temple service, is something that God sets up before drawing you close to him. So if he gets to the point where he says, this smells like dirty diapers to me, what that says is your spiritual condition is such that I really don't want you in front of me anymore. And in fact, I'm about to send you into exile. That is not the case with 90% of Christianity. I mean, you go to a church, or you go to our church, you go to any Baptist church, and most of the people in the congregation do not fall into the dirty diaper category. They make mistakes, they do stuff, and they go on, but, but they're not wicked. They're not oppressing the poor, the orphan, and the widow. They're not repressing anybody. They're just sort of stumbling through life and occasionally screwing up. But if you would go into that church environment and say, I have been really righteous this week, you would be treated like a Pharisee. How dare you say that you have been righteous? All our righteousness is like filthy rat. You know, you can imagine the conversation. So when Job, who is obviously suffering, is insisting that he has been righteous, imagine him going into your Baptist, Evangelical, Catholic, whatever church you want to say, and saying, I'm suffering here, but I have been righteous. And everybody in that church would descend upon him like, white on rice, and say, how dare you say that you're righteous? Nobody's righteous in God's sight. So put yourself in that mindset as you read the comments of his friends. These are not people who have come as his enemies. These are people who are trying to help. And just as in your everyday Baptist church, if you walked in and said, I have been really righteous this week, you would be descended upon, oh no, wait a minute, you can't say that because all our righteousness is only in Christ or all our righteousness is like filthy rags or you know whatever Bible cliche that they have and they would be doing it to try and get your mind right. Everybody's read Job and everybody knows that at the end of the day God is going to take a stripe off those guys and ask them to come to Job so he will pray for them so they can be 
forgiven. But understand, these are just like your other friends in the pews who are really just trying to help Job get his mind right so that he can come out from under whatever it is he's done and get back to being in God's good graces. That's their perspective. And so when Job insists, I have been righteous, they get sort of angry with him. So as we read this, sort of put yourself in that perspective that these are not bad people. And they are not setting out to afflict Job. They're setting out to comfort him. And the things that they are saying, and as it goes on, they'll get angrier and angrier because he's not really listening to them, or he's listening to them, but he's not taking their advice. So they get angrier and angrier. But understand that at the root of this thing, what they are trying to do is get Job's mind right so that he can come to proper repentance before God and get out from under these curses he's under. All right. Chapter 8. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be like a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? So the first thing he's saying is, Job, you've been saying you're righteous. And all of this stuff has come upon you. So what you're doing is you are accusing God of acting unrighteously. Now try doing that in your average church. Try and go in there and just accuse God of having been unrighteous this week. And again, imagine the reaction that you're going to get. And that's what Bildad is saying. And one other side note, and I said this last week, and I'm going to sort of say it frequently because it's important. Satan is doing this to Job. But the only reason Satan is doing it, or Satan is allowed to do it, is because God has allowed him to do it. So in some sense, God is responsible for this. I think anybody would agree with that. The thing that is important to understand is God is in the process of doing Job great honor. And it's going to be really difficult for Job and really painful for Job. But in God's view, the honor that Job is going to get at the end of this process is so great that the suffering that he has to go through to get there is of not much consequence. So it is not the case that God is unjust with Job. It's simply that God sees the reward that Job is going to get as he comes out of this, and in God's estimation, which is the correct estimation, that reward is worth far more than anything Job will go through on this earth. But only God sees that. Job doesn't see that. Job doesn't know that that's what's happening. So from Job's point of view, he's just minding his own business, being as righteous as he can, and all of a sudden the world falls in on him. So, from Job's perspective, God is treating him unjustly. And Bildad is really upset that Job accuses God of being unjust. And the only way we know that God is not being unjust is because we've read the whole book. Job doesn't have that perspective. So all the way down to verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Remember, Job's children were all killed. And so what Bildad is saying is, they must have deserved it. They must have been transgressors, and God has given them the reward for their transgression. Verse 5, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. 
And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. What he's saying here is, Job, knock off this righteousness stuff. Humble yourself before God. Confess your sins so that you can then come out from under this thing that you're going through, which is what I was saying at the beginning of the hour. These guys, at least initially, are trying to help. Now, they're not being helpful, but that's not their mindset. They're trying. Verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what our fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? What he's saying here is each of us has a certain allotted span on the earth. And compared to history, our personal allotted span on the earth is as nothing. However, there have been generations that have gone before us. And each of those generations has learned something about God. And they have written that down and they've passed it on. So what you have is the accumulated learning and experience of multiple lifetimes by referring to your history. And so what he's saying here is, you haven't lived long enough and you won't live long enough to understand God in your own experience so refer to the writings and the words of the elders and get this experience of generations so that you have a bigger perspective. Verse 11. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. You all know what papyrus and reeds are, right? The papyrus is big, heavy reeds that grow in the Nile. Reeds Basically, they're cattails, or, but they're big cattails. And the point is, when the water dries up, they're the first thing to go dry. So, verse 11 again. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. What he's saying here is, just as the reeds are very sensitive to the drying up of the marsh, so people are very sensitive to the withdrawal of the presence of God, and they wither quickly under those circumstances, just like the reeds wither quickly without water. Back up again, 13. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. And of course, you remember the house of Job's sons collapsed on them. This would have been a recollection of what's just happened to Job. 16. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stone. But if he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. So those who have forgotten God have nothing to trust in, and when they die, others will take their place and they'll be forgotten. Verse 20, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. So this is the end of his speech, and it 
goes back to the beginning and he's saying, Job, how dare you say that you're blameless? God doesn't do this to blameless people. You have accused God of injustice. You need to get your mind right. You need to repent. And then when you do repent, God will smile on you again and things will be well with you. So now we're down to chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So what Job is quoting here is Eastern wisdom. If I were to argue before God, I really don't have a chance because God has all the information. He is in fact my creator. So me matching wits with God is a non-starter, is what he's saying. Verse 4, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? God is mighty, and I absolutely know that for me to shake my fist in the face of God is a waste of my time and is not going to do any good. So let me read that again now, verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. The bear, the Orion, and the Pleiades are constellations of the stars. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? As in, call him to account for what he's doing. So Job here is explaining that he understands as well as anybody in the book here, the nature and the power of God. 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. I have no idea what that is. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. What Job is saying is, if I get in an argument with God, I am not going to prevail, even though I am in the right. 16. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. I am not even confident that I rise to the level of being noticed by him. 17. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Now what that means is, if it's a contest of strength, he's, you know, <laughs> I don't have the strength to contend with God. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? So what he's saying is, my complaint is with God. Yet there is no neutral judge. There's no court that I can take him to. Where is there a judge that can summon both of us into court? So Job understands that there's nothing he can do. All right, let me back up to 19 and read that again now. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, 
Who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I'm suggesting that's a combination of two things. One is a great intellectual disparity. You've all seen people who were gifted orators, so it's saying that. The other thing it is saying more subtly is there's a matter of perspective here. All I can see is my own circumstance. He sees the whole universe. And he sees all of time. So he has resources to answer my arguments with that I don't even comprehend. You understand what Job's problem is here? And Job fully appreciates his problem. He fully appreciates the fact that nothing he can do here if God doesn't release him. Verse 21, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. I haven't done anything, but I'm not holding myself up as valuable here. I regard not myself. And I loathe my life. In other words, my life has now become something that I would rather not have. Remember, we did that couple of soliloquies earlier in the book where he says, I really wish I had been stillborn. Or better yet, never conceived. I'm ready to be out of here. 22. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. So now again, he's coming back. He is, from a human perspective, accusing God of injustice. Now, remember, he's just gone through this where he says, my perspective is not God's perspective. And he would be able to prove me perverse if he were to stand up with me in court. Yet, from my perspective, it looks to me like he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Does anybody have any unbelieving friends that think that way? I was reading just a paragraph or a snippet of an angry atheist. I don't remember who he was. And he says, what kind of a god would make an amoeba that can go into a child's nose and eat his brain? What kind of a god would make something like that? just listing all of the terrible things that happen in the world. And he says, if when I die there is a God and I meet him and I'm asked to sit down beside him, I will refuse the seat. He is so angry at what he sees as the injustice, the evil, and so forth in this world, and he lays it all at God's feet, and he says, a God that would do that, I don't want to have anything to do with. And this is, by the way, a very smart guy, very articulate, very learned. And so from Job's perspective here, he destroys the righteous and the wicked. So what Job is doing here is echoing this atheist I was talking about. That, by the way, is a reflection of something that God has put into us, which is a thirst for justice. From God's perspective, God is setting Job up for great honor. And the things that Job is going through in the process of earning that great honor from God's perspective is a price worth paying. So you need to keep that perspective because this is every argument that you've ever heard from your unbelieving friends and everything else. Verse 23, when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. When a volcano erupts, it takes out the innocent as well as the guilty. 23 again. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. 
He covers the face of his judges. If it is not he, who then is it? What he's saying is, the wicked prosper. Which means that God has covered the face of his judges. God has said in his word that righteousness is important to him and that he will judge. Yet we see all of these wicked people getting by and prospering. So God must have covered up the face of his judges so they do not render just judgment. And if it isn't him that's doing it, then who is it? Verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. So what he's saying is, my life is fleeing swiftly. I could try and be happy about it, but I'm not. Back up to 28. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? This goes back to the idea that all of us have some dirty laundry. And you're going to find it out. And I am not ultimately going to be completely innocent in your eyes. Therefore, why do I bother? Why do I try to be good? Verse 30. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we would come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, while I am not so in myself. What he's saying is, I would go to justice with him, except that there is no court that I can take him into. He is both the judge and my accuser. There's nothing I can do. Chapter 10. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Remember, Job is not privy to the conversation between God and Satan. And it's essential that he not be. In order for the contest between God and Satan to work, it is essential that Job does not understand that such a contest is going on. Because God has said to Satan, Behold my man Job, righteous and upright in all of his ways. Satan, being a humanist, says, Let me take his stuff away. And then he'll curse you. That didn't work. Let me lay my hands on his physical body. Then he'll curse you. So Satan is a humanist. Everything is material and physical. And if I take away the material and physical from Job, he's going to curse you. God is saying no. Job is more than physical. Job is spiritual. And Job is a righteous man and he is a strong man. And Job will withstand everything that you can do to him. If Job knows that that's what's going on, it will strengthen his resolve. If an angel were to come down and say, Bob, it's really going to be rough for the next six months, but I'm telling you that there's a contest going on here between God and Satan, and God has put his money on you. You think he'd hold out longer than you would if you didn't know that? Sure. The point is it would change the dynamic. So it's important that Job doesn't understand what's going on. 
Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and to favor the designs of the wicked? Verse 4. Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty? And there is none to deliver out of your hand. I interpret this to be God. I could understand this if it were a man doing it to me, but it doesn't fit my understanding of your character. It's important to understand that Job is not some random heathen. Job is a man of prominence. His friends are men of prominence, and all of them are schooled in Eastern wisdom, and Eastern wisdom is wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. That's, that's typical of Eastern wisdom. That's what I mean. I don't mean pagan wisdom. I mean wisdom of the Eastern believer. They are all educated men. They are all men who think they understand God. Otherwise, none of this makes any sense. Verse 8, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will return me to the dust. Do you not pour me out like milk, and curdle me like cheese? You clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit my bones, knit me together my bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart, I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me, and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace, and look on my affliction. So what he's saying is, I'm in your hands. You made me. Nothing I can do about that. And there's nothing I can do about whatever you decide to do with me. If I were guilty, then woe to me. I deserve all this. But if I'm in the right, because of who I am in relation to who you are, I cannot lift up my head and accuse you because of our relative status. I would give you an example. Let's say that you have a king who's a tyrant. Lots of those have existed in human history. And you've got some guy that the king suddenly takes a dislike to. And for no particular reason, starts to beat. In fact, I've forgotten what country in Eastern Europe, but the king there enjoyed fighting, quote, unquote. And he would have peasants come in, and he would just beat the crap out of them, just because he liked to slug people with his fists. Peasants hadn't done anything to him. He just wanted to beat them. And woe to them if they stood up and said, you can't do this, or they seriously fought back. Because then the guards would come in and they'd suffer far more than a beating. That's the kind of thing Job is saying here. If I've done anything, then woe to me, I deserve it. But I can't stand up in your presence. I'm like this guy who has been brought into the presence of the king, and the king just feels like wailing on him, and the guy's just got to take it. There's nothing he can do. Verse 16, And were my head lifted up, in other words, were I to stand up in the face of this beating, and were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion, and again work wonders against me. This is our analogy of the king. If I dare to stand up in the face of this beating, then it's going to go far worse for me. Verse 17, you renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. 
you bring fresh troops against me. In our analogy of the king, the punching bag decides to fight back. All the king has to do is call in a bunch of guards who are nice and fresh and will finish the job. That's what Job is saying here. You bring fresh troops against me. 18. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. In other words, I wish I had been stillborn. And of course, that goes back to an earlier chapter and an earlier soliloquy. Verse 20. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer. I have a limited lifespan. Why are you taking so much of my lifespan up with this misery? Let me enjoy some of my life. Verse 20 again. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. I don't have much of a life. Please just let me enjoy what I have less. Leave me alone. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.